0: A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Or how about this one? Space, the final frontier. Some of y'all are showing your nerd dumb. It's okay. It's okay, right? I'm there with you. These are the voyages of the Star Trek Enterprise, right? Or how about this one? Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale. A tale of a. Yeah, Fateful Cruise. Or how about this one? Here's the story of a lovely lady, Brady Bunch, anyone? Maybe I need to, to modernize it a little bit. This was one from my years growing up. In West Philadelphia, born and raised on a playground. See there's the audience right there. You guys will appreciate this one. When I wake up in the morning and the alarm gives out a warning, I don't, I don't think I'll ever make it on time. Say by the bell. Nobody out there on that one. Okay. What are those? Those are all examples of introductions, right? And memorable introductions at that. They stick with us. Some of those shows you probably haven't thought of maybe in decades. But they re- remain with us. And part of it is because we heard them every Saturday morning or whatever it was that we would watch them. But also part of it is just the way they're written, they stick with us. Introductions are a part of life. Uh, this morning, some of you have introduced yourself to new people. You've met new people. You've said, hey, it's, it's nice to see you, nice to meet you. This is who I am. And, and they introduce themselves to you because... The point of an introduction is to acquaint two parties who don't know each other. Sometimes that's done on our behalf. Somebody says, hey, let me introduce you to, and then they'll bring you to someone and make the acquaintance. In John's gospel, that's what John is doing for us and Jesus. He's introducing us not just to some rabbi in first century Israel, not just to some carpenter in first century Israel, not just to some No name from this town called Nazareth that people were skeptical of in first century Israel. No, no, John is introducing us to Jesus, the eternal Son of God. In fact, I would argue that there is no greater introduction of Jesus than we find in the first five verses of John's Gospel. So if you would, take your Bibles and open up to the Gospel of John. As we do a little bit of background on our author John was one of the original 12 disciples called by Jesus. He had a brother named James, and they went by a unique name. They were the sons of Boanerges, which meant the sons of thunder. Well, John, uh, over time, endeared himself to Jesus so much so that he became one of the inner three in Jesus' circle. It was Peter, James, and John that Jesus would often take with him. He took those three up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He took those three with him further into the Garden of Gethsemane before his betrayal. He was one of the inner circle of Jesus. In fact, so much so that John in his gospel never actually refers to himself by name. When we read the name John in the Gospel of John, what we're reading about or the person we're reading about is John the Baptist. John in the gospel refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved And we might think, well, that seems a little presumptuous on John's part. But I don't think it was a statement of arrogance. I think it was a statement of overwhelmed humility. I think John was so amazed that he would be the object of the affection of Jesus. That he couldn't get beyond that. And he thought, you know what, it doesn't matter what my given name is. You know who I am? I'm, I'm the disciple whom this Jesus loved. John wrote the Gospel of John, and not only the Gospel of John, but also the three letters of John that we have, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and also was the recipient of the Revelation that makes up the last book in our Bibles. The Gospel of John itself stands out unique among the four Gospels. There's three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that are often referred to as the Synoptic Gospels. They contain a lot of the same material, and it overlaps in a lot of ways. But when you get to John's Gospel... John's gospel stands out because over 90% or thereabouts is unique to John. We might say, well, why is 90% of John's gospel unique? There's a number of reasons there. Each of the gospel writers wrote with their own purpose. And as such, John himself also had a purpose in his writing. John wrote his purpose for us. He doesn't leave us guessing. In John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31 says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that, here's the purpose clause. John says, I I wrote these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. That word is the, the Greek word for Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So John, he is unique to his content because he was writing for a specific purpose, and that is that anyone who would pick up the Gospel of John and read it would be able to know and believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that believing they might have life in his name. And that's why the Gospel of John is significant for us, no matter where you are in this room this morning. If you're a seasoned believer, the Gospel of John is going to encourage you. The Gospel of God is going to deepen your understanding of God and of Jesus If you're a brand new believer, the Gospel of John is going to hold you by the hand and be a tutor for you to show you who Christ is and who God is and what grace looks like revealed to us in the person of Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you would say, you know what, I'm here because somebody invited me, but I'm really not, I've never been to church, I would not call myself a Christian, can I just let you know the Gospel of John is written for you as well. John wants to introduce you to Jesus and show you in this book why he's the most important person that you could ever meet, ever meet. In this life and especially in the life to come so let's pick up in John chapter 1 as we read John's introduction to us of who Jesus is in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God we begin right away in the beginning was the word Okay, well, let's stop for a second and talk about this word. Who is the word? What is the word? The word in Greek is the concept of logos. Some of you have that on your Bible software program. It's the, the word that means statement or message or narrative or account. It's a word with a broad range of meaning. But John uses it in reference here to Jesus, which I'll demonstrate here momentarily. But the, the root word in the Greek of this word, word, is the, the concept of s- to speak to utter a statement. And so John says, in the beginning was the word. And again, it has a broad range of meaning, message, account, narrative, speech, language, statement, report, teaching. So how do we know what John meant here by logos? Well, I think there's some contextual clues in the rest of John's gospel, but also in the rest of the Bible itself. If we look at the concept of the word in the Old Testament, what we find is the word was representative of God's power and glory, and creative activity. You may have already gone there in the opening of this gospel when it said, in the beginning. There's another book that begins in the Bible with in the beginning. What is that? Genesis. In the beginning. Well, John's intentional with this. In the beginning was the word, the the statement, the message, the spoken revelation. Well, remember back to Genesis, the creation account. How did God create what he created? And God what? And God said let there be light and there was light you read through the Genesis account and and God's creative action is brought into being It's, it's realized through his spoken word his power his creative activity later on in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus we find that God's glory takes up residence within this tent that they call the tabernacle and this tent was with Israel as they were wandering through the wilderness. And this tent would be the place where Moses would go in to hear the spoken word from God. Well, in John 1.14, John is going to say this word, the logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, the word for dwelt there is the same word in the Old Testament that is translated as tabernacle. The word tabernacled among us, came and took up residence among us. So, as the Old Testament scene took place where God would, would come and meet with Moses and speak with Moses in the tabernacle, in the New Testament now we have the word of God who is a different sense, in a different sense, dwelling with us. And he is God's message to us through his tabernacling among us. So, it was his creative activity, his glory, and his power in Isaiah 55 10 through 11. Isaiah 55:10 through 11 the, the prophet there says the word of God never returns void but it always accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent and so as God in the old testament would prophesy and the prophets would carry forth the word of God the word of God always accomplished its intended purpose whether that was to reveal or instruct or confront or reform or judge Well, Jesus, as the incarnate word declared multiple times in the New Testament, but John 5, 36, Jesus declared very plainly that he had come to do the works that the Father had given him to accomplish. The word of God always accomplishes the work for which it is intended. So as John wrote, in the beginning was the word, that's some of the backdrop. But beyond that, too, we had in the Old Testament, when the prophets would write, it would say, the word of the Lord came to me. That's Jeremiah 1.4 or Hosea 1.1. The word of the Lord came to Hosea. And what it meant there was not just the the power and the glory and the creative activity, but the revelation of God. God revealing himself, God revealing his will, God pulling back the curtain on who he is and communicating to his people. And so it's against that backdrop, against that that curtain that we hear John or read John introduce Jesus as, in the beginning was the, the word. Lagos also was significant in Greek philosophy as well. It was the, basically the, the word that stood in for the concept of that which is the reason for all that exists. That which is transcendent. It would be referred to as the Lagos. And so here John very significantly, very intentionally says, in the beginning was the word. Well, you've heard me kind of put my cards on the table to say that this word is Jesus, but how do we know that? we know that Jesus is who John had in mind well John 1 14 which I alluded to a minute ago says in the word this logos became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only begotten from the father it's a direct reference to Jesus okay but also not only that but also Revelation chapter 19 verse 13 Revelation 19 13 notice the description of Jesus he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is what The Word of God. The Word of God. So in the beginning was the Word, and we say, okay, well, who is the Word? And the Word, John makes plain to us here and also in the book of Revelation, the Word is Jesus. As John introduces us to Jesus as the Logos of God, the Word of God, he's encouraging us, beckoning us, inviting us to realize that Jesus is not, again, just some other first century rabbi, he's not just some teacher. But he is the self-expression of God. He's the the greatest self-expression of God, such that when we hear from Jesus, we hear from God himself. Our first point this morning is just that. Hear God's greatest message in his son. Hear, receive, see God's greatest message in his son. The logos, the word of God. We call the, the book in your laps, we call the device, the app on your phones, whatever you might be using this morning, we call it the Word of God, right? God's Word, the Scriptures. Because we believe in a God who is not silent. We believe in a God who has spoken, who has revealed Himself. And the main way that He has revealed Himself to you and I sitting here today is through the 66 books contained within the greater book called the, the Bible, the Word of God. And so we believe in a God who's spoken, a God who has made himself known. And in the book of Hebrews, the writer says this. He says, long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, that, through whom he also created the world. And so here you have the writer of Hebrews saying, yes, in the Old Testament, God spoke by the prophets. And that was the divine word of God. That was the revelation of God. But, but in these latter days, we have an even greater revelation of the Father through the Son, through Jesus. In these latter days, he's spoken to us by his Son. I remember a pastor at one time telling me that to see Jesus is to see the Father. Not that they are the same person. That's a, a heretical teaching called modalism, right? We believe in three persons, one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But when we see Jesus, we are seeing the heart of the Father. When we hear Jesus speak, we are hearing communication that is in keeping with the Father. When you see the grace of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, the patience of Jesus, the zeal of Jesus, it's a reflection of the Father. John's gospel reiterates these facts over and over again. He says in John five thirty six, a verse that I alluded to earlier, here it is in quotation, he says, but the testimony that I have... Jesus is speaking here, is greater than that of John, John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So when we see the works of Jesus in the Gospel of John, we are seeing the works that the Father has entrusted to the Son to accomplish. Or John 5.30. John 5.30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. In other words, Jesus was saying there, I'm not going to go rogue and just do my own thing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So there Jesus is saying that he is lockstep in keeping with the Father's will. John 6, 38. John six thirty eight says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then John 10, 30, One of the greatest statements of the unity between the Son and the Father is Jesus who simply says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. And so when we see Jesus, again, we're not just seeing a first century Jewish rabbi, teacher who had some good things to say. We're not just seeing another apostle or another prophet. We are seeing the the Son of God. We are seeing the greatest self-expression, greatest self-revelation of the Father. And so John opens his gospel by putting us on alert that as we see Jesus, hear Jesus, witness Jesus' works, We're seeing, hearing, and witnessing God's most profound expression of himself. So I just want to encourage you this morning, if you're dry and distant, that John's Gospel is going to allow you to hear from Jesus or hear God in Jesus invite you to the closeness with the Father that you desire. If you're hurting or suffering, in John's Gospel you're going to hear the Father through the Son offer you encouragement and comfort in following him. If you're anxious or fearful, in the Gospel of John, you are going to hear the Father through the Son offer you the promise of peace that surpasses understanding. If you're discouraged from trying to find hope and satisfaction everywhere else in this world, you are going to hear from the Father through the Son the offer and the promise of eternal life. If you're feeling shame and guilt from sin, condemnation, In John's gospel, you are going to hear from God the Father through the Son as he offers you mercy and forgiveness and grace in the hope of forgiveness through the cross. So if you've ever wanted to know God, to know him more than you do presently, to get closer to him, to know his mind, John is holding forth Jesus as the answer to those desires. In the beginning was the word. D.A. Carson, who is a brilliant theologian, far more intelligent than I will ever be, has said something, though, that I have to disagree with. He called this passage a masterpiece in planned ambiguity. Okay? In other words, that there's a planned unclearness about what John says. But I think as we continue in our passage, I'm going to argue the opposite, and I'm stepping on, on dangerous territory by disagreeing with him on that. But I don't know him, and I trust that you don't know him, so we'll just call this family time right now, all right? Because I think John gets pretty plain as he continues on in the gospel. And I'd like us to go forward. It says, in the beginning was the Word. And he says this, in the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He, God, or the Word, rather, was in the beginning with God. In the beginning was the Word. We, we dealt with that. And we noted the parallels, right, between this passage and the creation account in Genesis, didn't we? Because Genesis opens the same way. In the beginning, God created. John's gospel, in the beginning was the Word. So what was John trying to tell us about Jesus? Well, here's the question for us. What beginning is in view in John 1-1? What beginning was in view in Genesis 1-1? The beginning of all beginnings, right? There was nothing but God before Genesis 1-1. And that will give you tired head to try to comprehend that. I spent some time this week thinking about that. Trying to wrap our mind around the concept that there was nothing... There's no matter, there was no physical created universe in existence, there just was God. You want more tired head, go to the reality that time did not exist and he had existed from eternity past. There was no starting point to God. And it's at that point that the word already was. So if the word was at the beginning, in the beginning was the word, that means that the word was pre-existent with God. God. Which would imply what John says here that the word was God. In other words, there has never been a time in all of creation when this word was not. He has always existed. First John 1:1 1, 1 starts out this way, that which was from the beginning. He goes on to unpack that as the person of Jesus. Jesus was there at the beginning of all beginnings, but then his argument keeps going from there and he says, and the word was with God. Now's where I can give D.A. Carson a little bit of, of credit here because it's it's like, okay, wait a minute. He was there at the beginning, so you're telling me he is God and now he's with God. Yes. How do we understand that? Well, we as believers in Jesus Christ, as Christians here, we have a what's called a Trinitarian understanding of God. That's what I alluded to earlier, that he exists as one God but three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in John's gospel, right off the bat, we see Trinitarian theology emerging. Because John is saying the word was there in the beginning of all beginnings. And that word was with God. When you read with God, it's probably helpful to understand as this is a reference to the Father. The word, the Son, was with the Father. But then John gets to the crux of his opening argument when he says this, the Word was God. That's what he wants us to understand here. As he's introducing us to Jesus, hey, meet meet Jesus. I'd like to introduce you to someone. He's the greatest message that you could ever hear from anyone because he's the the message of God. You know what? He was there at the beginning of all beginnings. And he was there with God. You know why? Because he is God. In the Greek, it's, it's, there's no bold. You might have bold in your emails if you're trying to get a hold of somebody. Or I don't know if you do this. Maybe you shouldn't do this. But if you've ever been trying to communicate passion and texting, you put the caps lock on your texting and you text in all caps, right? Well, there was no bold in, in italics or anything like that in the ancient Greek language. So what they would do is they would take the word order in the sentence. And the word they wanted to emphasize in the sentence, they put that at the very beginning. And so as John writes here, the word was God. The way it reads in the Greek is this, God, the word was. John wants to believe no doubt in the reader's mind that he is making a clear and definitive statement that Jesus is fully God. Now, you may have somebody come and knock on your door and say, your Bible has a problem with it. Because you'll see here in the Greek, there's no article next to God. And so um, it's, it's, it's just saying the word was a God. The counter to that is this. Had John put a definitive article in front of the word God in the Greek, he would have been committing a heresy that I referred to earlier called modalism because this is what he would have been saying. He would have been saying there's no distinction between the Son and the Father. The Son is the Father. The Father is the Son. And that would be a a wrong view of God there, okay? Plus, there's other examples in John's Gospel where he uses a, a noun and he implies that this is a specific proper name and there's no article there. And so we don't need to panic and go, oh no, our Bibles are wrong because there's no article there. It's proper what John did. It was the right argument and the right way to lay this out here. But John is making a bold, clear statement that Jesus is God. Maybe you think, okay, does that matter? Yes. Because here's what that means. That means that Jesus was not the offspring of a conjugal union between God, Elohim, and Mary, as some will want to tell you. It means that Jesus was not the brother of Satan, a created being just like the rest of the angelic realm. It means that Jesus was not promoted to godhood through some acts of obedience that pleased the the Father. It means that Jesus was not the, the archangel Michael, created by Jehovah God as a spirit being. It means that Jesus was not always subordinate to the Father as the rest of his objects of creation It means that Jesus wasn't just a man, just a good teacher, just a prophet, but not God. What it means, it means that Jesus existed in perfect union with the Father and the Spirit for all of eternity past until the moment of creation. Admittedly, that's a concept we will never be able to wrap our minds around. But that means he enjoyed unbroken fellowship as the triune God. To the moment that God said, let there be light, and then the incarnation in John 1.14. Ponder this for a second. This means that Jesus never felt cold. Never felt hot. Never felt sorrow. Never knew frustration. Never felt tired never experienced betrayal had never been bound never been mocked never been tried never been beaten never been sentenced and certainly never tasted death this eternal god took on flesh For us, in the single greatest demonstration of sacrificial love the world has ever known. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that Word is your Savior, because He did become flesh and dwell among us. Our second point this morning ponders that fact by calling us to think about this. Give thanks for God's greatest sacrifice. Give thanks for God's greatest sacrifice. Jesus, as the Word, is God's greatest message. He's God's greatest self-revelation. He's God's greatest statement. But he's also God's greatest sacrifice. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, the Apostle Paul says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that Word did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself for you and for me. Going to the cross, dying for our sins so that we might be forgiven and rising again so that we might be with him forever. He set this aside for you and for me. So again, why should this move the needle for us and why preach this in John 1-1? Because we'll get there at the end of John with the cross. And the reason is this, without this concept that Jesus is God, you and I are still in our sins. Without this concept that Jesus is eternal, that he was there at the beginning of all beginnings, that he was with God and he was God, then, then the cross is completely robbed of its power. Because here's the way it works. Think about it this way. If you grew up with siblings and you punched your brother, you maybe got in trouble with your parents. If you punched your brother in the face, let's, let's ratchet it up, right? Not just an arm punch, but you got mad, you, you hauled off and slugged your brother in the face. Your mom and dad probably grounded you right? Maybe you got some corporal punishment thrown in with with that too, right? Okay, Uh, that's one concept. Now, what if you punched your principal in the face? You're going to have the corporal punishment from mom and dad, you're going to be grounded, but you're also probably also going to be expelled from school at that point too, right? We're rationing things up a little bit. Okay, what if you punch a police officer in the face? How's that going to go for you? Well, you're going to get the corporal punishment from mom and dad you're probably not going to be in school for a little while and uh, you're definitely going to uh, face the consequences of being in cuffs in the back of a squad car now what if you punch the president of the united states in the face this is not a political statement okay just an ambiguous president of the united states what if you punch the president of the united states in the face he's got a, a a security detail that is going to put you in a whole world of hurt aren't aren't they Did you notice the offense didn't change? But the punishment changes? When we sin against a perfectly holy creator of all the universe, the punishment is commensurate with the greatness of the one we've offended. And because he is an eternal God, eternally good, eternally holy, our offense against him draws an eternal punishment. That's why when we talk about hell, we talk about it as a place of eternal torment, eternal punishment. Because for God's justice to be satisfied, he is infinitely holy. And any offense against an infinitely holy God draws an infinite amount of wrath. You say, well, that's not good news. I don't like that. And you shouldn't, because none of us in this room are perfect. All of us, including the one standing up here behind this pulpit, sin. Which means all of us are guilty. All of us deserve a full, infinite wrath from the Father against our sin. All of us deserve hell. Every single one of us in this room deserve nothing but hell. You say, this is not a good message to start a church with but God, but God, right? And and, and so here's why John 1, 1 and him being eternal matters to to us when it comes to the gospel. Because look, here's the thing. God gave us Jesus and said, hey, to us, you can be forgiven. I, I, I can be forgiven of an eternal debt, an infinite debt? Yes, how? I could never pay that. Exactly, you can't, but Jesus can and so the Word becoming flesh, which we'll get to. I don't want to preach my legs out from under me, but so be it. The Word becoming flesh is significant because here's what that means. The Word came here and took our place on the cross. And here's the thing. Because He was eternal God, in three hours on the cross, He satisfied all of God's wrath against your sin. And not just one sin, against all of your sin. Past, present, and future All of the wrath of God fully satisfied by Jesus on the cross for you. And the reason an eternal God's wrath can be satisfied is because eternal God died on the cross for your sins. That's why we're just saying just the cross is enough. And that's why it matters, and that's why John takes the time at the beginning of his gospel not just to get straight into things as far as, well, let's talk about Him walking on water and feeding the 5,000. Let's talk about the things that are, are, are kind of like, wow, that's amazing. How did He do that? We need to get the, this part right about Jesus. Because this part has an enormous bearing on our standing with God. Because if Jesus was not there at the beginning, if Jesus is not eternal, then you and I are still in our sins. And we still deserve the full wrath of God. But because We have an eternal Savior. We have the offer of salvation given to us by God. Because in the beginning, the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and went to the cross for us and rose again for us. And so we can give thanks for God's greatest sacrifice. But it continues in verse 3. He restates verse 1 and verse 2, he was in the beginning with God, but go back again in verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So from his pre-existence as eternal God, John next turns to his role in creation. His role in creation. In Genesis 1-1, again, we read that God created the heavens and the earth, and here John says that Jesus is the one through whom all things were made. And without him, not anything was made that has been made. The concept of Jesus as creator God is unique amongst monotheistic religions. And In other words, if you go to Islam, they're not going to talk about Jesus as the creator God. Judaism is not going to talk about Jesus as the creator God. They have a concept of a creator God. But Christianity is unique because we hold up Jesus as creator God. When you think on Jesus, what are the things that come to mind most often, I wonder? Savior? intercessor, mediator, Lord, God. But I wonder how often we think of Jesus as the creator. John's statement here makes this unambiguous assertion that Jesus was there and Jesus was participating, but he's not alone. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews, sorry, chapter 1, verse 10, says this, "'And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth "'in the beginning, "'and the heavens and the are the work of your hands.'" A reference to Christ. Colossians 1, 16, referencing Jesus. I read this during our scripture reading. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 1 Corinthians 8, the Apostle Paul says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father through whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. And John says, all things were made through him. How about the Genesis account? Does that support that fact? Well, we alluded to it earlier this morning, right? Genesis 1.3, and God said. Genesis 1.6, and God said. One nine and God said. One eleven and God said. One fourteen and God said. One twenty and God said. One twenty-four and God said. Pastor, are you telling me that Moses understood that he was referencing Jesus as he was recording these things? No, I don't think so. But God knew what he was doing, and as we look at it through the lens of John, we can understand that as God spoke things into cre- into existence, into creation, His creative agent was Jesus, as John is saying here. John 1, 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. If if Jesus is the the source of all things, the creator of all things, and it follows that he is the source of life, and there's two kinds of life that we can talk about. There's bios, which is where we get the word biology from. That's physical life. That's the the life that we think of most often, probably. But then there's another kind of life called zoe. And zoe is eternal life. It's spiritual life. It's transcendent life. And so when John here says, in him was life, that's the life that he's talking about. It's that eternal life. It's the life that all of us want. It's the life that the world around us wants. It's the life that everyone is after. It's the life that transcends death. And John says, it's in Christ. John uses this term, Zoe, 36 times in his gospel. And he's introducing us to Jesus here and letting us know right away where he is where he stands, rather, in relation to being the source of this life. To have life is to have Jesus, and to have Jesus is to have life. It's not something that exists apart from him. John 20, verse 31, let me remind you again of the reason why John wrote, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life, Zoe, in his name. John 1, 4, in him was life. Third and final point this morning is this, rejoice in God's greatest provision. God's greatest message, God's greatest sacrifice, God's greatest provision. First John 1, 2 says, the life was made Manifest. It was shown, it was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. He's talking about Jesus. We proclaim to you the eternal life. We proclaim to you Jesus. Our first John 5, 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. We are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He, Jesus, is true God and eternal life. Jesus is eternal life. As John's introducing us to him, he wants us to understand that. The goal of most professional athletes is to win, except for maybe somebody like Mike Trout, who inexplicably continues to play for just a a team that doesn't want to win anything, right? Angels fans out there, anybody? Kim from California? But the goal of most professional athletes is they want to win the championship, right? They want to win the the pinnacle of it. And I think one of the the coolest trophy presentations that exists in all sports is the presentation of the Stanley Cup. Growing up in Dallas, I remember in 1999 when the Dallas Stars won the Stanley Cup, Brett Hull scored the game winner in overtime. It was amazing. It was great. And his foot may have been in the crease, but it doesn't matter, right? But I remember watching the trophy presentation afterwards, and, and the commissioner comes out And the the trophy's there, and the commissioner's dressed in a suit and everything else, and the players are just exuberant, and they're ecstatic, and they're all gathered around. And the commissioner gets ready, and he grabs the microphone, and he says some things nobody wants to hear, because everybody's waiting for one moment. They're waiting for the moment that the commissioner invites the captain of the team, Darian Hatcher, number two, to come over to him and to take the trophy. And so that's what happened when the Stars won the Stanley Cup. He invited Darian to come over and to take the trophy. And the Stanley Cup winning team, they do the same thing. Every time that captain takes the trophy, you know what he does with it? He takes it, he kisses it, and he throws it in the air, and he skates away to celebrate with his team. And they hand it to each other, and they skate around the arena and around the rink, and they just celebrate having the trophy. Well, here's what I want us to think about. Gary Bettman is the current NHL commissioner, so that means every year he's the one that possesses the Stanley Cup, the thing that they want more than anything else. And when they win the game, Gary Bettman's job is to give them the trophy, but guess who no one pays attention to after the the trophy is turned over? Gary Bettman. In fact, they take the trophy from him and they skate away to celebrate with the team and it becomes all about the trophy. And Gary fades away as he walks back down that red carpet so he doesn't slip on the ice and he goes to do whatever he's going to do with the rest of his time. Y'all, that's not eternal life. But I fear sometimes that's how we think about it. We think, well, I need Jesus so that I can get eternal life. And once I have eternal life, well, then I'm going to skate away and celebrate with eternal life. And I'm going to live my life however I want to live my life with no reference to Jesus, the one who secured and gave me eternal life. And we let Jesus kind of fade into the background of our lives as like this figurehead that will show up every once in a while when we think maybe we need him again. But we've got eternal life and that's what's so good. And here's what I want us to understand and what John's trying to show us this morning is there is no eternal life without Jesus. Jesus is eternal life. If you want everything about eternal life but you don't want Jesus, then you want something that doesn't exist. Because the only way you have eternal life is to have Christ and to have Jesus. It's found nowhere else and in no one else. In Him was the life, and the life was the light of men. That concept, the life being the light of men, in other words, this life that we want, that we need, being Jesus, it's not hidden. It's the light. And what does the light do in the midst of darkness? It dispels the darkness. You go into a dark room and you turn on a light and it immediately illuminates the room. You walk into a dark place and you take a single match and you light that a single match. And that match is, uh, is something that everyone is going to notice in that room no matter how far away from it they may be. Because why? Because a light is stronger than darkness. And this life is the light of men. And John says in verse 5, the darkness has not overcome it, has not overpowered it. Though it tries... The metaphor of light and dark is prevalent throughout Scripture. We're told to walk as children of light. We're called to be lights in this world. In fact, in Matthew 5, Jesus says in the the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. Ephesians 5, 8, At one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Philippians 2, 15, we're called to be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom we shine as lights in the world. Christian, we are light because we possess the light of the world, the life, the logos, Jesus. And the darkness is not going to overcome it. And I mean, it may feel that way right now. You pull out your phone, you open up, you are greeted with a headline this morning that's talking about, the, the Russian and Chinese Navy that are, are off the coast of Alaska and your heart starts to sink a little bit. Or you open up your news and you read headlines about what's going on politically with the, the attacks against God's word and against the God that we serve and, and you become discouraged. Or you share the gospel with your neighbor and you're met with resistance or you're met with opposition or they laugh you off and you become discouraged. Or you've been sharing the gospel with your loved one, your family member for years and decades and pleading with them, imploring them, like Paul says, to come to Christ and they have it, and you become disheartened, and you think, is the darkness winning? The answer is no. John 1, 5 tells us that. The darkness has not overcome it, and it never will. And so you say, well, what what can we do? You can turn on the light. What light do we have? You have Christ. You wanna push back the darkness in the world? It's not about politics. When to push back the darkness in the world, it doesn't start with morality. If you wanna push back the darkness in the world, it begins with Jesus. And listen, if you're in Christ, you have the light of the world. You have everything that you need. And as John is introducing us to Jesus, now your job is to go and introduce a lost and dark world to Jesus so that they too might come to know the light of the world. Jesus is God's greatest message, God's greatest sacrifice, God's greatest provision. And if you haven't met him yet today, I would implore you today is the day of salvation. We've talked about it. We've sinned against a perfectly holy God. We are objects of his wrath, as Paul says in Ephesians 2 but because of his great love for us, he's provided Jesus for us. And today, if you will repent from your sins, which means to turn, to turn from your sins, to living from, for self and everything that you've ever wanted, if you will turn from living and in, in, in worshiping yourself and now turn to serve and worship Jesus and put your trust in him, trust in him how? That he died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead so that you can live with him forever. Today can be the day of salvation. If you are in Christ, if you have met this Jesus that John introduces us to here, it's now your job to tell other people about him. That's why we're still here like we talked about a couple weeks ago. Otherwise, Lord, take me home. The one thing I can do better here than I can do there is to tell other people about Jesus, to introduce more people to Jesus. John wrote this book to let people know that Jesus is the Christ. So that they might come to believe that. And believing that, that they might have life in his name. I'm gonna pray, and our team's gonna come back up, and we're gonna close with one more song. God, we thank you for Christ, his goodness, his kindness, his faithfulness to us. We thank you that you have introduced us to him through your word, that we can come to know your greatest word. We can come to know your Logos through the scriptures. And I pray that we would. I pray that we would learn more. I pray that we would grow more. I pray that we would deepen our understanding. God, I pray that we would be confident in who we are in Christ, that we would come to have known that he is the life and the light of men. We're grateful for that reality, God. We want him to be exalted. We want him to be magnified in our lives, in and through the way that we live, in and through the way that we conduct ourselves in this lost world. Help us to be a a light that makes Christ beautiful in the midst of the darkness around us and draw more and more to you and to faith in your name. We pray this in that name. Amen.